Hebrews chapter 8, Jesus Christ, mediator of the new covenant. And uh, before we actually start studying this little chapter, uh, just the first sort of 13 verses, um, I would like to go to Acts 6 verse 7, just for some background. And uh, a little verse, so the word of God spread. This is the background to what's going on here. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. It's probably estimated at that time in the New Testament there would be thousands of priests working in Jerusalem in the temple and uh, the Christian church, it's good to know from Acts 6 and 7, that the Christians had actually penetrated the walls of the temple, that Jewish uh, center of religion. And the temple walls and the very heart of Judaism, salvation has come. Uh, and uh, it's such an encouragement. And so the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. Can you notice the word disciples? disciples it's not converts the number of converts no it's not christians but it's disciples the number of disciples increased rapidly now if you were preaching simply for converts as a an evangelist you'd go hopefully there would be converts and then you would move on and the converts would be somebody else's responsibility but you see the word used is disciples, not converts, or not Christians. And we find that there are a large number of priests who are now disciples. Wonderful thought. This is what the Holy Spirit is doing. And um, people who are a disciple is a person who needs, after conversion, needs to grow and to develop spiritually. Disciples need discipling. The ordinary Jews of Jerusalem, just like the priests, are disciples who require initially milk to grow, then solid food in order to develop into maturity. So how do we view people tonight? I don't know. I've just got to know very quickly some of you today. But you know what, I might not know your names, but I'm standing here and I'm saying, I'm looking at people who are disciples. You know, you are disciples, as I am a disciple. And there's, there's, they're sitting this side, they're sitting here, sitting at the back. We've got disciples. Uh, the focus is not converts, but making disciples. And if you know the um, Matthew 28, the Great Commission, it makes disciples, is the point. You see, what we have here is a lifelong process. And it's a long-term investment if we're going to make disciples. We're going to, it's going to take our gifts, our time, our finance, and everything else that goes uh, to support each disciple in this place. And may this church, as as I have a hope for my own church. May this church have a reputation, not just for making converts, 
but actually for making disciples. May this church be a, a people invest, in, in, um, investor. You see, the individual and the church community, we're all in it for the long term, for the long haul. Are we looking for converts? Often we pray that, Lord, may someone be saved. Uh, that's fine, that's commendable. But how often do we pray for us as disciples that we may grow and that we may mature? And are we each one of us playing our part, supporting the Christian growth of other people we know around about us? We're there to be supporters and encouragers of one another. That's what we have. And here's the wonderful commission, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Disciples, well, we're going to start in Jerusalem in Acts 6, but we could be starting here in Bonesse. In Jerusalem there were a large number of Jews a large number of ex-Jewish priests who are now obedient to the faith. Disciples, you know, need support. And disciples need teaching. The Hebrews book in our Bible is very interesting because it's something we would call a distance learning course. And it's learned, it's, it's a course which exists specifically to help Jewish Christians. That people who have come out of the Jewish religion with all their ways and all their laws and rules and regulations. And it's designed to give them a good understanding of what Christianity is about. And so as we kind of come into Hebrews, it has a function and it's written for Jewish Christians. There's a rapid increase of converts. And their number is getting so big, something has to be done about it. And the book of Hebrews was written to help them. Here's something that you can make sense of in, as a, an ex-Jewish uh, person. And the problem we have as we study the book of Hebrews is that I have never been a Jew. So I don't have the background that they would have. Things that would come natural to them as they study the book of Hebrews. I've got to think long and hard about because I don't understand. But we need, it's a book which is so wonderful that if we don't study it, we're going to miss an awful lot of important and some things. The problem we have, I haven't got the Jewish background. So it's difficult, it's challenging, but it's worth it. And in many ways, it's foreign to my culture and to my religion. But I think if we don't touch it, we're going to miss something which is amazingly rich and fruitful for us. Now, here's one interesting thing about the book of Hebrews. A strange fact. As a, a book, it's centred very much on Jewish Christians. <coughs> but never once does it ever mention the temple? The very thing at the heart of the Jewish religion, it doesn't mention the temple. Um, the temple was built by Jews, if you remember, coming back from Babylon. And it stood for about 500 years in Jerusalem. 
And just before the birth of Jesus, the temple was in such an awful state. It needed a, a makeover, more than a makeover, an absolute restoration. And if you remember Herod the Great, the king of Judea, he tried to keep in with the Jews. And what he did to gain favor and popularity, he said, don't worry, I'll sort it for you. I'll fix your temple and I'll pay for all the building or rebuilding costs. So this is what, what he was doing to try and keep in with the, uh, the Jewish people. So because the temple is not in the Hebrews, let's just put a line through that for a moment. Anything going backwards to the Old Testament is back to, not to a temple, but to a tabernacle. And um, so the temple in AD 70 would be destroyed by the Romans, never to be rebuilt. So when you think Hebrews, don't think the temple, think of the tabernacle. So, we've got disciples in Jerusalem, ex-priests, ex-Jewish people. And the wonderful sentence uh, saying here is that they are obedient to the faith. What a wonderful thing. That kind of encompasses it all. They've discovered the pathway that we've discovered. The pathway, our first challenge is that are we still obedient to the faith? Many things can happen to us personally. But you know, we've got to keep going forward. We've got to keep on that pathway with God. And as these young ex-Jewish people, it's said of them, they are obedient to the faith. And that's just something for, to take away for the start of a new week. Are we obedient to the faith? So the problem which lay ahead to these Jewish people on the pathway uh, and for young disciples was actually severe persecution. And um, so they are obedient to the faith. But what lay ahead was persecution. And uh, so what do you do? You're a Jewish background. You've discovered a faith, a living God. You've discovered a new pathway and you are obedient to the faith. But now there's persecution on the way amongst these, any people who were Christians. And um, what do we do? Do we face it? Do we accept it and take it? Or do we find a, another option? Well, there was another option. Just go back to where you came from. Don't go forward, go back, return to the Jewish way of life and to the Jewish religion. Now, Hebrews 6 says something very important. And it says that if you return to, to Judaism, it's not an option. There's a wonderful word used in chapter 6 of Hebrews, and it's the word irreversible. You can't go back. You keep going forward with God. Irreversible. There's no going back. Even for the youngest and the weakest disciple. Says Hebrews, we go forward. That's the way we go. So here we are. We've got all this background happening. So going back to the Jewish faith. But as you read, and I'll get to it eventually. As you read Hebrews 8, 
you'll discover something absolutely special and something absolutely fundamental. Even if you were to take the best that Judaism has, take the best that the Jewish religion has, you'll discover, says Hebrews, that Jesus is far superior. Anything you've got, Jesus is superior. And he's greater than any religion. And he's greater than anything that the Jews could compare Jesus to. And this is a wonderful reoccurring theme. Jesus is greater, not only than the best of the Jewish ways, but you see here, he's greater than angels. We've sung about Moses, but Jesus is greater. High priests, sacrifices, and when God makes agreements with people, for example, on Mount Sinai, Jesus is greater than anything that happens. Wonderful thought. That uh, So we have a reoccurring theme. Time and time again. Jesus is greater. The new disciples would know. A lot of this from their Jewish history. And their upbringing. But let's come to. Begin to chapter 8. And start to unpack it. What we begin to see in chapter 8 is, first of all, not something new. It's not a new theme. But he spends a little bit of time just telling you about what you've studied previously. It's pause for thought time at the start of chapter 8. Before you move further, before you move deeper into the study, says the writer, just hold on. Just press the pause button and think and consider uh, what you've learned so far. So that's what chapter 8 starts. Before moving forward, consolidate it, reflect. Think about the teaching you've just received and pull it together in your mind and in your life. So much of what is in chapter 8 is found elsewhere in Hebrews. Jesus as a priest starts the third verse of chapter 1. Jesus makes purification for our sins in chapter 2. Chapter 3 we're told to consider him. Jesus is an apostle and a high priest for our confession. And actually when you come to study Hebrews, what you find is you're really studying Jesus. And that, that's, you know, if, if you get to that point in that study, it's very worthwhile because you're actually studying Jesus. What a thought. What a wonderful thought. So, we have two and a half kind of chapters uh, devoted to Jesus as a high priest. How does the high priest carry out his duties? This is what we come into. In chapter 8 through to chapter 10. And something about a new covenant. So here's the opening verse. Verse 1 really captures my imagination. I love the, the language here. The point of what we are saying is this. What are we to start a Bible study? The point of what we're saying is this. What are we to start teaching material? 
And where exactly does this come from? Look back in the material and look at the facts. We're going to pull it all together and then we're going to develop and we're going to build on it, says the writer. So hold on to your hearts. Here we go, says the writer of chapter 8. The point of what we're saying is this. Now ex-Jewish priests, disciples, would look at verse 1 and they would look at it differently from the way I look at it. Because they would see, we do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne. Priests, high priests, do not ever sit down. Jews would notice this. They knew that a high priest would never ever sit down. They were standing because their work was never done. And uh, that was part of their upbringing. And this, first of all, rings a bell to these Jewish disciples. And it, it says something very important. Jesus is someone who is sitting as a high priest. And that would say to the Jewish disciple, his work must be finished his work must be finished wonderful thought the priest never sat down so he's a high priest seated in God's presence his work is finished and in verse 1 we start to see that there's a relationship uh, with God and with us very special a disciple with a high priest. We do have such a high priest. We have a high priest. There's ownership there. There's a relationship between God and me. You see in verse 1. The high priest. Is my high priest. And in verse 1. The high priest is your high priest. What a thought. Look what's going on. In the heavenly realms here. We've got a high. Each one of us. We've got a high priest. That begins to blow my mind here. I have and you have this evening. Something which reaches the very right hand of the very throne of God. Jesus is the holy undefiled one. The one who is separate from sinners. He's also higher than the heavens. What we need tonight we have. What we need tonight God has provided. The Jewish disciples from their background and life experience have seen and witnessed those serving in the temple and in the synagogues. And the ex-priests would be people who did exactly that on a daily basis. That they would stand to do their work. And there comes now, as we move on in the verse, he sits down. And he serves in the sanctuary. You know from Calvary to the present day. He's been serving in the sanctuary for me. And for you. And you know he's doing it for each one of us. He's serving on my behalf. My mind <coughs> begins to hurt now. The fact that Jesus is there. And he's working for me. He's serving for me. He's doing it 
for each one of us. Yes, we've got a saviour. Yes, Calvary proves that. Praise God, we've also got a servant in the highest heaven. The servant king. The servant high priest. And I find these words very powerful in verse 2. He serves in the sanctuary. He serves there for you and me. He died for me. If that wasn't enough, he's now serving for me and for you. You know, these should be life-changing, life-motivating words because he serves in the sanctuary. You know, through prayer we often thank him for the cross. But I've hardly ever heard people ever pray and thank him for the work he's doing at, in the sanctuary. His ministry is ministry for his people. Where is the Lord's ministry? It's in the true tabernacle, verse 2. All the old temples, bricks and mortar, the old tents, the old buildings, have in a real sense served their purpose. They've gone. There is now a holy place, a sanctuary in heaven itself, a true tabernacle set up by the Lord. Previous uh, buildings and tabernacles were set up by people. Here is something set up by God. Jesus not only is a high priest, but he's a minister of the sanctuary. And you know, as I read these verses, I ask the question, what is Jesus to offer? And I keep getting the answer very simply himself. As he offers for sacrifice on the cross himself. A wonderful thought right up to date. He is serving. He's given himself in that place for you and me. He's serving as the high priest. Jesus is not only a high priest. Of course he is the sacrifice also. Wonderful thought. He is both the offerer and the offering. No other high priest was like that. And that's Flanagan is one of the commentators that I sometimes read. A sinless high priest. A spotless victim. Revelation 5 and 6. Christ has offered himself once and for all. And his presence before the throne is a lamb freshly slain. He's a sacrifice never to be repeated. That's the message of Hebrews. The cross has taken place. There will never be another. The sacrifice is over. We've got a great high priest. And he takes my feeble expressions of appreciation and of worship. And he makes them acceptable for God. With the fragrance of his own person. There's intercession. There's prayer on our behalf in heaven itself. Heaven's a busy place. Romans 8 and 34. He is at the right hand of God. And is interceding for us. But there's more. He's upholding every one of us. And he's upholding every one of God's precious promises. He's upholding the victory. His authority gives us everything which is guaranteed to the believer. Nothing is ever go wrong with God. And we talk about a new covenant. Jesus is at the very heart of it all. Jesus is bringing all things into line. 
and the old is gone and the new is on its way. And says verse 3 and 4. One thing it repeats in order to emphasize is that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is unrepeatable. Hebrews repeats the unrepeatable. It was necessary for this high priest to have something to offer. Hebrews 7.27 shows that the offering was Jesus Christ himself. That's a wonderful thought. A high priest would take an offering. But here's a high priest who was the offering. His earthly work is completed. And yet what Hebrews says is that he never carried out priestly work when he was on the earth. But now is the need for a high priest in heaven. If he, verse 4 says, if he were on earth, he would still not be a priest. Earthly work not required. In verse 4. Verse 5 and 6 we come to the covenant. The covenant. Throughout the Old Testament there are many Covenants, Exodus 6 and 7, a promise by God that the Jewish Israel would be God's people. A covenant, an agreement, a binding uh, situation. <coughs> God makes promises towards his people. Not only towards individuals, but to nations, to groups of people. Pledges are made, promises, and the assurance that he would do some, or perform some action. A covenant is a binding agreement between two or more people. It's a kind of legal sort of document. And Hebrew mentioned contracts, contract law, covenant agreement between God and man. But you know what Hebrew shows me as we study is that the agreement's never 50-50. Half man and God will do the same. What God does, I'll match. There's none of that. A covenant is a gracious gift from God. Many promises made by God which far outweigh the contribution of the, of the human in this contract. A gracious gift, many covenants, many con contracts. Sinai, the law given, a contract between God and man. The problem with this is that usually the human party to the contract breaks it. Failure to keep the covenant was major problems. And Hebrews 8 verse 9 talks about this. I jump to Isaiah 30. Just some, there's some examples of some of, just some of the covenants. Some of the, the agreements between God, Isaac, Abraham, Noah, Jacob, Israel, the home people of Israel, and uh, uh, David. But Jeremiah... Interesting chapter 31. I know it's a bit small, but we're about 600 years BC now uh, in this. And Jeremiah was one of the most unpopular and hated of all Jewish prophets. He was a political and social revolutionary. The nation of Israel was in shambles. The temple did not exist. Jeremiah is speaking while the Babylons are knocking at their door. Invading Judah, burning Jerusalem and carrying off the Jewish nation into exile. And Jeremiah was one of the few remnants in, uh, left in Judah, living in the middle 
of something which remem which is like a bomb sound. The longest simple quotation from the Old Testament found in the New is taken from Jeremiah 31. And as it's taken, it comes and it lands right in Hebrews 8, verses 8 to 12. That is pure Jeremiah 31. And it talks about a new covenant. I will make a new covenant. A new covenant is required because the Israelites simply didn't keep the old ones. And with the old, there's failure. But you see, with the announcement of the new, Jesus will forgive his people's sins. Verse 12 of Hebrews 8. Jeremiah says you can keep all the laws and practice them. But he says you can still end up a failure. So something has gone wrong in the Old Testament days. And what a good study in chapter 31 is there is I'll make a new covenant. But if you look at all the things using the word I will. I will. This is what God is going to give the people. I will be their God. They will be my people. And they will know no more. You know, they will just go on about, I will forgive their iniquity. And I will remember their sin no more. And what you discover in, in the balance of this contract, just how much God gives us compared to God's people. It's, it's wonderful. And the I wills uh, is the language of the new covenant. We haven't got a 50-50 relationship with God. God gives us far more than we, we can even possibly imagine. God is the instigator. God is the majority shareholding in this covenant relationship. And the wonderful thing about God is he puts so much into each covenant. This is what I will do, says God. And Jeremiah says it's not a, na a national knowledge of God which is needed, but a personal knowledge. And that's where they're going wrong in, in the Old Testament. The personal knowledge of him is gone. And in verse 10 of Hebrews 8, we have um, there, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on the hearts. This is different from the Old Testament days in the old way obedience was expected but the Lord himself writes the law on the hearts of the people and in their minds so God places his law on their hearts and secondly the knowledge of God is personal experience so we are we're getting a different slant if you like on our relationship with God. Verse 11 says, I will, they shall not teach each one of his neighbours and each one of his brothers, saying, Know the Lord. And here's the difference for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. So God places his laws in our hearts. The knowledge of God is personal experience, and the Lord will forgive his people's sins. We have a wonderful God who does so, so much for us. Let's just move on because I'm conscious of time. I'm just going to... Right. So if you compare Jeremiah 31 with Hebrews, you, you, you come this, I will 
totally out of proportion the commitment of God to people. And verses 8, there, there's the old way, the high priest. That meant so much to the Jewish uh, religion. And what did Christians have? They had no temples. They had no robed high priests. In those days they had lots of slaves and Gentile and Jewish believers, disciples, widows and orphans, some ex-Pharisees and, and ex-priests, all on the disciple road. But you see, Christianity had a, a saviour and a shepherd and a great high priest. Yet the old system, it did its best, but things were going terribly <coughs> wrong. I wonder if we, if in our Christian life, we are moving on in the disciple path. And I know Christians who've replaced repeated animal sacrifices for repeated prayers for forgiveness. For 20 years they've been praying for the same forgiveness, for the same sin. And is this Christian living? It seems like a bit of stagnation to me. Tomorrow morning, when we wake up, are we going to be the same person who woke up this morning? This may be what we want and what we're happy with, but is it actually what God wants for us? Is this living in the spirit of the new covenant? For some of us, today we've been to a couple of services. Remember a few things from this morning, things we've spoken to. We're going to partake in the breaking of bread. We'll remember him. We've sung his praises and we've given our worship. We've listened to people as they open their hearts and pray. We've listened to some preaching, pointing us to Calvary, pointing us to God's wonderful sacrifice and God's salvation. And... As we just very quickly delve into Hebrews 8. The Holy Spirit who indwells us. What is he being allowed to do in us today? Is it going to have no effect? Tomorrow will be just the same as today. As we begin to piece things like Hebrews 8 and what God's given us. Wonderful things. And verse 10 says of God. I will be their God. And they shall be my people. I'm in a wonderful position, as you are, that he's my God and I belong to him. The old verses they knew, but the new covenant is so much better and superior. And if you can think very briefly, just think about how Jesus is working so hard as a high priest uh, at the right hand of God. And... It's just wonderful. Wonderful that he's doing it for me. And you know, we do little things and we think we've done a lot. Yet, we think of a cross and we think of the throne and Jesus, the keeper of the covenant. He's maintaining everything. He's making sense of everything as the world goes pear-shaped. And I'm wonderfully forgiven. And that's at the very heart and at the very foundation of the new covenant of Hebrews and Hebrews chapter 8. With the new comes life in God's grace, forgiveness, God's deliberate forgetfulness. And there's another thing, that God wants to change us. 
And we'll just stop there because I'm conscious of the time. We have a, a hymn which is uh, 780, How Deep the Father's Love. <laughs>